I'm Mark Hennick. This is So-Called Normal. Hey folks, welcome to So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Hennick. Today on the show, we have Marianne Bainton. I've worked with Marianne off and on for several years now. Uh, she's such a she's so fun to speak with, to talk to about the issues that we're both so passionate about, mental health namely, uh, but specifically for her, workplace mental health, mental mental health in in the places where we spend more waking hours than uh, anywhere else. And uh, Marianne serves as the program director for the Great West Life Center for Mental Health in the Workplace. Uh, she's a well-known consultant. Uh, she uh, has served as the co-chair of the technical committee for this. This is going to sound a little bit uh, wordy, but the National Standard of Canada on Psychological Health and Safety in the Workplace. That was something that I worked with with the Mental Health Commission of Canada as well when I was on their board to be the first ever standard in the world for how we treat people at work. Imagine that. Uh, and it's been having great success. I like to think of her, and I told her this as the, the fairy godmother of workplace mental health in Canada. She's just... Uh, uh, the, her depth of knowledge is extraordinary. So we had a great conversation about workplace mental health, a very current issue, and she has some great recommendations, some great suggestions on on how we can help and, and change uh, workplaces for the better. So here's my conversation with Marianne Bainton on So-Called Normal. I, I usually like to tell or ask people to tell me about themselves in their own words instead of letting their reputation precede them, which you have a great reputation as uh, one of my previous guests referred to you, the godmother of workplace mental the health godmother. in Canada. Can I be the fairy godmother? <laughs> the fairy godmother. <laughs> so why don't you tell me about yourself, Maria? Oh, that's putting me on the spot. Right. I don't like to talk about myself, Mark. Right. I know you don't. Yeah. <laughs> Starting with the tough I questions. Can, I can talk about anything related to workplace mental health or psychological health and safety, but... Well, so oh, that's something about you. So workplace yeah. mental health and psych health and safety, what got you interested in that in the first place? Do you know, it really is an interesting story. I had a small brokerage, and so very business-oriented. I had eight employees. Mm-hmm. Four of them actually had a diagnosis of a mental illness. Oh, interesting. But I was, like many people, so ignorant. I didn't understand what that meant. And if you had said that there were people working for me that were mentally ill, Mm -hmm. I would have been completely indignant because I had the best and brightest people in the industry. They were wonderful And you can't be wonderful and smart with a mental illness. Right, (laughs) right. So I thought mental illness meant they couldn't function and these people were brilliant. Really, they were brilliant, compassionate human beings. But as I looked back, I sold that business and I went back to school because they worked so hard for me. Mm. I could afford to do that. And then I started to learn what bipolar was, what depression was, what panic disorders were. Prior to that, I never made the connection between calling that a mental illness because All eight of my employees Hmm. had things that they dealt with, had stressors in their life, had issues in their life. So the four that had these diagnoses weren't any different. They not only learned how to live with and manage the condition that they had, they taught me how to support them to be their best at work. Right, right. And honestly... That's been my whole career (laughs) since then, is taking what people who have had these mental illnesses have taught me, Mm -hmm. but it goes so far beyond 
treating an illness to embracing life, getting out of our own way, getting out of our own head. And it has inspired me and made my life better. And in many respects, at least in my own personal experience, using your experience for something good, right? It's like you've had this struggle. Sure, a lot of people struggle, actually, some more than others. But okay, what now? I might as well do something with it, Some make something with it, do something productive. And it sounds like you're using people's stories in many respects to help change people's perception of mental illness in workplaces. So, Mark, what you're just talking about now, I've just learned in the last couple of years a new phrase called post-traumatic growth. Yes. Yeah. And I love it yeah. because, of course, we know post-traumatic stress disorder can be very problematic. Um, It's very difficult to get better from. Mm. But post-traumatic growth happens all the time. We just don't pay attention. We don't celebrate it enough. And we don't intentionally seek it out in ourselves. If we did, if we went through a challenge, a disappointment, a frustration, an illness, and said, okay, what can I learn from that? How can I grow from that? That's intentionally leveraging it. And I think we can improve our quality of life yeah. if we do that. And I think resilience is something to be said around how intentional you have to be in doing that, right? Some people just naturally, not to bright side things or silver line things or whatever, but some people just naturally see challenges as opportunities, I think. Others have to learn how to do that. Uh, and that can be uncomfortable. But the beauty is we can learn. Right. We don't have to be born with it. We don't have to be taught it in childhood. We can make a decision today to yeah. do that. And I don't know if you're aware, but we just released From Surviving to Thriving for post-secondary students. I just recently learned about this. So yeah. can you tell me more about what that is? So it it is all of the, well, I shouldn't say all of, there's many items and ways to build resilience. But every piece of this tool is to build resilience. Right. And it's easy and it's free. So many of the universities and colleges across the country are picking this up Mm. and they're either doing it with their first year students who are transitioning from their support network, sometimes for the first time in Mm -hmm. their life. Mm -hmm. And also for those that are going to be thinking about the transition to work, because in both of those time frames and both of those transitions, stress levels can rise. So what are you doing with students in these transition periods? What's, what is the program doing for them? So it looks at what your automatic responses to stress are. Mm. So one of mine is hives. Interesting. Physical, uh, physical, very uh, physical reaction. Right. Mm. But I always believed that I had an allergy to something and I just didn't know what it was. And I went through all right. the testing, the elimination diet, and they said... We are conclusive in our findings that you're allergic to stress. Interesting. Well, do you know that was six years ago? And I have only had hives once when my mom passed. And not any time other than that because now I understand that it's stress and I can anticipate the stress and manage it. Right. And you don't get the anticipatory anxiety that comes with it. Yeah, yeah. Right. Because now you have tools and you can learn. And I think... You know, I talk about recovery a lot and sometimes to the degree that it bothers people because especially if you're very much in the struggle of it, it's very difficult to see anything outside of that struggle, right? And it can be seen as as great. That's great for you, but what about me? Well, you can learn how to do this too. 
Jessica Holmes just posted on Facebook. We had her on the show, too. I know. She's brilliant. But she was saying that she was really resentful in the beginning, Mm -hmm. that she had to eat healthy food. She had to go to sleep on time. She had to exercise every single day. And it's like other people don't have to do Mm -hmm. that. But then as time passed and her life became healthier, more balanced, and her depression was in check, she started to understand the value of it. She says, I still don't really love exercise. <laughs> but, you know, it is, it, it is, I think, normal to resist right. having to do something, having to do anything, yeah. right? I say, I'll do anything you ask me to do. But if you tell me to do it, I may just not. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, and especially if it's outside of what your self-constructed little bubble of normal is, right? Everything's uncomfortable for people if it's not what they do every day. But if what you're doing every day is either fueled by and or fueling your depression, anxiety, whatever it is, stress – then maybe that's not where you need to be. That's maybe that's not where you need where you'll live your best life. So maybe you do need to be uncomfortable for a little while in order to break out of that. Right. right. Uh, somebody said to me about uh, dieting. There's no food that tastes better than fit feels. Yeah. <laughs> and you think, hmm. Well, actually, I'm not sure I believe that about chocolate, but that's right. beside the point. Because <laughs> that's not your normal, right? So, yeah. So um, you, uh, I think famously, but lots of things are famous only in my head, uh, famously started or, or worked with a program that I then later came in to run, Mental Health Works, uh, to train workplaces on mental health awareness. Now, this has become very trendy, I think, in the last probably 10 years or so. What did you see then building one of those very, I think, a program that was way ahead of its time? Not a lot of people were doing structured mental health awareness for workplaces then. What did you see then and how has it evolved in that period of time to where we are now? Well, honestly, Mark, when I started, so 2003, and I would say I'm doing workplace mental health, people would say, what is that? Mm. Or they would say, oh, that must be depressing. Mm. It's like not even a little bit. It is uplifting. It's encouraging. But we really did have to advocate that it wasn't about teaching employers and employees these are mental illnesses and these are the symptoms, but that we're all in this. We're all dealing with our mental health. Some people have more of a health problem than others, but we are all in it. Let's raise us all up. And that really led to the whole idea of psychological health and safety. Let's go upstream Mm -hmm. so that no workplace does harm to people. And I always say it's like when we remove toxins from the air Mm -hmm. in a workplace, we do it for everybody. But if you happen to have a respiratory problem like asthma, then it's even more important for you. If we remove unnecessary stress and conflict in a workplace, it's good for everybody, but it's especially important for people who also have a mental illness. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we've seen uh, many more companies come on board, especially with the release of the National Standard for Psychological Health and Safety in the Workplace, which you co-chaired, I believe. Yeah. So so could, talk to me more about what a national standard is for psychological health and safety in well, the workplace. Well, you know, the way I tell the story is a lawyer, a doctor, and a social worker walked into a bar. <laughs> and it's the absolute truth. So it was Dr. Ian Arnold, yeah. Dr. Martin Shane, and myself. Right. And we started talking. And Ian, the the medical doctor, was saying people are dropping like flies from stress-related illnesses. They're mm-hmm. so on the rise. And you can treat somebody for it. 
But when they go back to work, often it just recurs. And Martin, who's the academic lawyer, he said organizations, employers, more and more are being held responsible for mental injury Mm -hmm. to employees. And they're coming to me and they're saying, but how do we avoid that? Like, what do we do? Mm -hmm. And what I was saying is I think there's this impression that a psychologically safe workplace is one where you have to walk on eggshells around people. Mm. You have to be nice all the time. And Lord knows we just can't be nice all the time. <laughs> In <laughs> my case, I prefer not to be it, nice most of the time. No. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. See? But we had already developed guarding minds at work. Right. So we said, And guarding minds is a way to, to measure, right? To assess psychological yeah. health and safety, the factors that impact it. And it's free. So if it's not going to cost a lot of money, if it doesn't take a lot of expertise, if it supports organizational excellence and sustainability mm-hmm. rather than competes with it, then what is it we needed to convince employers? You know, we mm-hmm. made the business case. We've done all this stuff. What else do they need? And we said maybe the issue is that these so-called do-gooders who are promoting this don't have enough credibility. Mm. So if we had a standard, which by the nature of Canadian standards, has to be done by consensus with a balanced group of people, meaning no one interest group Mm. was allowed to dominate, Mm -hmm. and it had to be done at arm's length from any other organization, maybe that would improve the credibility. And I think it has. So it couldn't, in other words, it couldn't just be everybody prescribe your employees this drug from this company. Right. It has to be a lot broader than that. Yeah. So so the 13 psychosocial factors, what's your, what's your favorite three? So first of all, <laughs> there's more than 13. Oh, okay. So there's 13 specifically mentioned plus a 14th, which says other chronic stressors as identified by employees, meaning you have to ask. And right now we're doing an update to Guarding Minds Mm -hmm. and we're looking at making the psychosocial factors more distinct because Mm -hmm. it's a system, right? Mm -hmm. So they all Mm -hmm. overlap and, and can impact each other. But if you're asking me the ones that I think have the greatest impact, Mm -hmm. the first one would be clear leadership and expectations. And Mm -hmm. I don't like to blame the manager, the supervisor, the boss for everything because sometimes it's not their fault. Right. But it is their responsibility. Sure. And so if we can train leaders to be more aware, to be more effective – then not only will they do no harm or do less harm, but they'll also be able to put things in place that are protective factors because ultimately when you talk to somebody about what really energizes them when they go to work and they're Mm -hmm. really motivated, that feeling is what psychological health and safety is. Right, versus I don't know what I'm expected to do. Right. And I don't know how I'm supposed to do what I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. So all of that uncertainty, all that unclarity uh, is stressful. So, And just to segue from that, and I'll go back to the other two Mm -hmm. um, factors, is Dr. Jody Samra, we identified that there's a gap, Mm -hmm. that the leaders were expecting a lot from them, but we're not really clear on what that is. Like, be a good leader. So she actually broke down the psychosocial factors looking at the specific strategies that leaders 
can and should employ Mm -hmm. in order to protect psychological health and safety. And that's now available for free. It's called the Psychologically Safe Leader Assessment. Mm. The beauty of it is we're not, it's not a popularity contest Mm -hmm. like some 360 assessments. Mm -hmm. It simply says, do you do these strategies? I think there's 60 of them. And to what extent do you do them? Mm-hmm. And the reality is you as a leader may or may not do them because you were never given instruction right. to. You were never given the support or the resources or the time to do it. You'd never even heard of it before. So it's not that it's going to tell you you're a good or a bad leader. They're just going to say, right. look at these things. What Maybe you skills? can do more. Well, this comes back to where we started almost around this idea of when you see a, a barrier or a challenge or, or un, potentially unflattering information, what do you do with that? Do you say the assessment is wrong or or uh, uh, that's not important? Or do you say, oh, there's an area where I can improve and I can implement specific training strategies, you know, take the initiative to actually learn how to do that better, right? Right, right. So now what what can managers do who identify weaknesses, areas for opportunity, wherever you want to call it? What can they do to improve on those? So we drilled all the way down. So there's a statement that says you do, um, let me think of one, that you have one-on-ones with your staff. So you're actually checking in with them, seeing how they are at least, you know, on a regular basis every couple months or something. Mm -hmm. And some people will say, I can't do that. Like, Mm -hmm. we're not even in the same building. We're not in the same province. Mm -hmm. We give free resources on how you could deal with that differently, how you could do a one-on-one by Skype, by email, by text. Mm -hmm. And we break it down in questions that are things like, what are the challenges you're facing right now? How have you contributed to workplace mental health. Mm -hmm. And we're asking questions that are really aimed at getting that connection, but also getting that awareness Mm -hmm. of where people are at. We talk about the trust factors in a workplace, and we have something called the mistake meeting. Mm -hmm. And in it, the boss talks about the mistakes they've made, how they fix them, or they ask the team to help them fix them. Because I can I can visualize all the managers listening to this you know, just getting what? uncomfortable at that. Yeah. But if we make learning from mistakes yes. post-traumatic growth, sure. right? If we make yeah. learning from mistakes and being honest about them the norm, we're not going to have a fear-based culture where people hide their mistakes mm-hmm. until they become a crisis. Yeah. I've, I've been uh, wanting to get uh, Dr. Carol Dweck on the show who talks a lot about growth mindset. And if anybody hears this and I still haven't gotten to her by the time this airs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tell her tell her Mark's looking for her. Yeah, exactly. Um, but she very much talks about all this in a very famous TED Talk that she did, this idea of, of growth and, and of you know doing something more with the, with the challenges you have. Mm-hmm. But also this comes back to a point where I don't think many people realize that most managers aren't actually trained to be managers. No. They get to be there through you know who they know or or tenure or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, but many of them are never actually trained on how to manage people. Right. right, and you must encounter that all the time. Sure, and I and I feel badly for the managers mm. that are put in that position because they're often traumatized sure. by the work. One of the things that I say to leaders, though, because they're worried about saying or doing the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes they say or do nothing, Mm -hmm. which is the wrong thing. Right. (laughs) Um, And I say if the underlying intention, whenever you're dealing with an employee, 
is the thought, how can I help you be successful Mm -hmm. at work? Mm -hmm. Not how can I tell you what you're doing wrong? How can I point out all your faults or feelings? How can I give you more work to do? How can I just uh, load things on you and make sure you're not being lazy? But how could I support your success here at work? That alone means you're not going to make too many missteps. Well, and if your employees are successful, then it meets your needs as a manager, right? right? Ideally, assuming that that job is clearly defined and that their success actually does contribute to the business, right? Right, right. So now, where have you seen this work where you train a manager to do these things, you know, or or any examples or case studies of sorts of somebody who's struggling where you, you can intervene in a more productive way? Can I give a shout out to Mindful Leader? Yeah, please so, do. <laughs> uh, that's Sarah Jenner's not-for-profit. And um, the leadership training, now it's a certificate course. Mm-hmm. It's bigger. It's not a one-day workshop. Mm-hmm. But I truly believe that the elements that are in that Mindful Leader certification are the ones that really support successful mm-hmm. leaders who want to do the right thing, but want you to give it to them practically. Don't right. give me the theory or the evidence or whatever. That's great. I'm glad it's there. Yeah. Just tell it? me, what do I say yeah, and yeah. how do I do it? Yeah. And don't make it some great big long process. Make it something that gives me those aha moments that yeah. I can use in, in that moment. You asked me, though, for three of the psychosocial mm. factors. Mm-hmm. So uh, another one that I think is so important is psychological support. Yes. And it's closely connected to organizational culture, but it's the way we treat each other. Mm. And again, not to blame management all the time, mm. but the speed of the leader is the speed of the gang. If we set the tone that we are going to have respectful and civil interactions, yeah. that conflict is not just encouraged, Mm -hmm. it is done in a way that lifts everybody up. We can have different opinions and we all get excited about that because let's learn from each other. Let's find synergy. Well, I find, you know, both as an employee in all kinds of different organizations, but also as a consumer, as a customer in, uh, for different organizations. You can walk in the door and you can, you can taste, you can feel what yes. that workplace is like sometimes, right? You can yeah. feel the tension in the air sometimes. Well, and you know, in the work that I did coming up with return to work plans, mm. the, I started to understand that in some workplaces, it was really simple. You would come up with a strategy, everybody was on board, mm. and it worked like clockwork. It was it was so simple. And then there were some where you couldn't tell who had depression or anxiety because everybody was unhappy and stressed out. And so you think, what is that? And actually, that's where the concept of psychological health and safety came from. Mm. What's the difference between these two workplaces? And what we understand as well is loyalty, Mm. morality, um, honesty, all are impacted by that type of culture. Right. People are much more likely to call in sick, to steal, to right. embezzle in those workplaces where they feel like nobody cares anyways. Right. Nobody has my back. They're just taking advantage of me. So yeah. I am justified in taking advantage the of them. Broken window theory. Right. Right. Only in workplaces. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, I, I think that that's that's fascinating because then how do you actually change that if it's if it's something that has if a, if a toxic organizational culture has infected everybody in some ways or another? How do you actually change that? We have this um, another free resource called psychologically safe interactions. Mm. And you actually need to understand from both chronic mental stress claims in Ontario and the bullying claims in BC that most of the claims get denied. Mm. The vast majority of claims get denied. And the reason for that is that people don't intend to bully or cause stress, Mm. but they do. But they do, yeah. But the intention's not there. So we took that and said, okay, well, let's make the assumption that these people who are bullying and making lives really difficult in the workplace don't intend it. Let's help them become more aware. So the first part is about really understanding the difference between your intention and the perception of others. Mm. And I'm still trying to figure that one yes. out myself. Yeah. Well, do you know what, though? <laughs> when I started to understand it, I understand I get really excited about things. Sure. But to some people, that's intimidating and shutting right. them down. I focus and concentrate a lot on things, and it looks like I'm cranky all the time. Uh, there you <laughs> and go. there's only a 50-50 chance I'm actually cranky. <laughs> but, well, but it's true. You, know, you never know. If somebody is you know, reading or on their desk, at their desk focusing, maybe they look really unhappy, but actually maybe they're uh, focusing on something else. Right. right. And some of it is let people know who we are so right. that they – but some of it is that's not enough. Right. Some of it is you need to change your behavior. Sure. So I was talking to my staff about what happens when we're stressed, and they said to me, well, when you're stressed – you make noises. I said, <laughs> what kind of noises? Yeah. <laughs> what? And they said, yeah, you go, oh, oh. And you know, you slam down and you get up and then you slam yourself back in the chair. And I said, oh, honestly, I didn't yeah. know I did that. Yeah. And I said, well, what do you think when I'm doing it? They said, well, we think you might be mad at us that we've done something Marianne's wrong. Marianne's on a tear again. Yeah. No. And I said, that's terrible. Yeah. I don't want you to feel that way. I'm sure it's sure. me frustrated with me. And I said, I want you to tell me the next time I do that. They go, uh, no, <laughs> we're not going to tell you. Yeah. And I said, but if you believe that I don't want to stress you out, mm-hmm. if you believe that that's not my intention and you know that I must be unconsciously stressed, mm. wouldn't you want to bring me back from that, bring mm. me to the present moment so that I'm not living in that stress state? Mm-hmm. And they went, oh, yeah, like we do. Mm. So our our safe word, <laughs> our word is just breathe. Right. And if one of my staff said to me, breathe, I know they care. Mm. I know they're breathing in my secondhand stress. Right. And I can immediately stop because it's not my intention to do that. Right. Now, that's something that it sounds like took a lot of work to get to that point. Absolutely. Right? If you tell your manager who's having a, <laughs> an issue, <laughs> breathe. Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah, <laughs> no. Right, right. Yeah, good point. But so these are the things that we can do. So the yeah. second part of psychologically safe interactions is something that I call checking assumptions where mm. – If I think you're thinking something that you're not thinking, we can really get into a mess. And how do you say, I feel hurt, I feel angry, I feel dismissed, I feel disrespected. How can you bring it forward? And we teach people how to do that in a way that's not confrontational or accusatory. Yeah. And that happens all the time, I think, where maybe an employee who is, uh, uh, and actually this happens a lot, I think, 
better versed on mental health and awareness and psychological health and safety than their manager is, yes. might say something like that. And they might say, I am upset because this happened or you sent an email to me in this way and I read it this way. But then the manager might uh, get into a, a, no, that didn't happen that way or that's no, right. that's not what I meant or that's wrong or this. That's not always the most helpful, even if it is factually incorrect, right? Right. And that's why we want to put it on the table. I say, we're all adults. We all want to have a good work experience. Mm -hmm. We don't want work to be another stressor. Life will bring us stressors, plenty of them. Mm -hmm. We don't need work to be that. Work should be a refuge where you go in, you do what you know how to do. You're recognized and rewarded for it. You're supported to do it. And we go home at the end of the day with the energy to deal with whatever else life gives us. You know, ideally, and I'm just kind of thinking now, it'd be neat if uh, I've never been in a part of a workplace like this where there is an on-site coach or mediator of sorts, not HR or anything like that, because that usually gets used for punitive or, or, you know, other reasons. But somebody who could really help on-site walk employees and and managers through this kind of thing. Well, and so the the resource is there if there's somebody who will do it, but there's lots of consultants and coaches who can pick it up and use it. The end of it is actually a team intervention that I used in my consulting practice, but I explain because I don't think it takes more than good intention and some awareness of self and others to be able to do this work. I don't think you need to be a clinician uh, per se. You need to be somebody Mm -hmm. with emotional intelligence. And you bring each of the team members in individually, so privately, confidentially. You're not going to report back what they say, but you ask them four questions. Mm -hmm. The first question is, what's already good about this place that you don't want to lose? which is important that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, mm-hmm. right? Second question is, what are what needs to be different for you to be glad to come to work every day? Mm-hmm. And people might start to complain about what's there, but mm-hmm. you say, understood. So what needs to be different in order for you to do this? And the, the whole point is get people imagining the kind of ideal workplace they want, rather than focusing on what's wrong. Getting stuck on the problems. Third question is, what are you personally willing to do to -hmm. contribute to this kind of a workplace that you described? And I have people say, I already do everything. Perfect. I say, that's great. So tell me what you do and how we would measure it. Because if we just think good thoughts, Mm -hmm. and so we feel we're not part of the problem, We're also not part of the solution. So what do you do to contribute and how would we measure it? People will say, well, everybody needs to be nice. Mm. Well, define nice. Mm. What is it practically? And how do you measure? So we got to get concrete and specific. And then the last question is, what if you're having a bad day? Right. Yeah, the kids were were all uh, over you this morning. You spilled coffee on yourself on the way in. Traffic was really bad. And you're not aligning with the new type of team approach that we've agreed right. on, how do you want someone to respectfully call yeah. you on it? Yeah, that that myth of the the wall between work and life, yeah. right? as though we don't bring <laughs> our life to work every single day. Well, right? it, it, that I don't know how anybody can. We're right. one whole person. Yeah. So we come as a whole person. That doesn't mean that we should deal with all our stressors in life all day long. Sure. In fact, that's not good for you. Right. It's good to have that break. 
but to be compassionate and supportive of people when they're having a bad day in the way that we would want to be supported. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned um, earlier that the that you've made the business case uh, for all this stuff. What you know, for a manager, for a CEO, uh, for a board listening to this conversation, what is that business case? Why should what's the interest in doing this other than everybody feeling good when they come to work for a frontline leader? Hmm. Your whole life will yeah. be easier yeah. because, you know, there's a lot of leaders that, that don't know how to delegate. Mm-hmm. And by supporting an employee to be successful, you're not really delegating. They are taking it on. And it doesn't mean that every employee is going to be in their dream job. Sure. Like that's not realistic. Some people are just doing a job. But I tell the story, Mark, all the time. My mom was a janitor. Mm. But she loved her work because the principal said to her, you're making a difference in the lives of these children by keeping them healthy, by keeping them safe, by allowing them to play. And the teachers that were in the school where my mom cleaned treated her like a colleague Mm. rather than the janitor. And she was invited to everything. She helped out at the school play. She felt like she belonged. So I, I have to say over and over again, it's not the work. Yeah. It's how we feel about the work that we do. Yeah. And we can do that for everybody. That sense of connectedness, of community, of, of feeling like whatever role you play, you're part of the bigger picture. Right. right. And that you're valued for that. Yeah. So how long did your mother do that work? Oh, decades. Decades. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. In fact, she liked it so much that she lied about her age and didn't retire until 70, even though she was supposed <laughs> to retire at 65. Because it was that meaningful. Beca- it, yes. Yeah. She just loved it. That's fascinating. So in in some ways, you're kind of a janitor uh, for workplaces. (laughs) You're coming in and cleaning the place up, right? Well, yeah, I guess. Um, You know, this this intervention that I was telling you about with Mm -hmm. these questions, Mm -hmm. we've gone into really toxic workplaces Mm. and people start to change before they leave the reveal of the new agreement. Mm. And do you know why? It's because there's no blame or shame. It's not going in and doing an investigation and saying this person's wrong and Mm -hmm. this person did this. And you're going in and saying, what kind of a workplace do we all want? And then you present it to them saying, this is what you say you as a collective want. Mm -hmm. And people, (laughs) I think it's human nature. I was misbehaving or not being nice or not being kind or respectful because of you, your behavior. But if you're going to change, then I can change. And when we all do it at the same time, it's much easier. Kind of a no-fault approach. But you do need leaders who are then committed to holding people responsible for the behaviors. Like it's not enough to have this beautiful document and everybody feeling great that Mm -hmm. day. Mm You've got to hold people to it. Yeah. So actually, and, and I, I find this kind of relates to personal recovery as well. Is there an important role for catharsis, for the airing of grievances, all that stuff? Or does that get people just still focused on the problem, too much on the problem? I believe that the catharsis, the venting happens in private mm. with the person who's facilitating the change, mm-hmm. the, the, the team agreement. Mm-hmm. Rather than a group airing of grievances, I think it weds you, first of all, to your victim story. Sure. The more we have to tell how you done me wrong. Right. And it also hurts people again 
that are listening to it. Right, because they know what the issues are, right? They, they know what the issues are, and they don't want to be accused of being the source of the issues. Right. So I don't think the group grievance airing mm-hmm. is helpful. Yeah. But being able to vent and be heard is. Yeah. So when you do the interview with each person, you allow them to vent, mm-hmm. but you don't agree or disagree. You just comment on how that must feel for them. Then you start to focus on, okay, so what will make that better? What will you do differently? And you really turn the conversation around to the solution to help that person say, okay, you know what I was dealing with, and now we're going to move forward. Yeah. So when you do that, you have the agreement in place, uh, and then you say, you know, it's up to the managers in the workplace after that what they do with that information, if they're going to backslide or if they're going to imp- implement it. What happens when people start to, or when people break the agreement, when they, they don't abide by that? So the beauty of this written agreement is it already tells you what's going to happen. Okay. Right? It's yeah. already included in there. And I add at the end, you know, most organizations, most teams will say, well, if I do something, I want you to come right to me mm-hmm. and face-to-face talk to me about it. Mm-hmm. And I say, okay, and what if you continue that behavior? Then what should happen? Mm-hmm. And so we have a stepped plan mm-hmm. about how to respectfully intervene, giving people the benefit of the doubt. Then you escalate it. And then right in the agreement is then it should be progressive discipline leading to termination because mm-hmm. you can't have somebody who refuses, even with help and support, right. to behave in a way that's not harmful to others. Right. So. The other part of it is that the agreement is written in very specific, measurable terms, Mm -hmm. not vague motherhood statements about being nice and being a team player. And so to hold people accountable is very simple. You just bring out that agreement. This is what it said. Were you doing that? Why weren't you doing that? What do you need to do that? And likewise for, I, I think, accommodations in the workplace as well. If people are struggling with uh, a mental health problem or illness at work, I, I've heard this question probably a thousand times, you probably a million, uh, how do you actually deal with that, right? And, and I've heard you say many times that many accommodations for mental health at work are free, low cost, uh, sometimes uh, uh, modifications to that are fairly simple to do, right? Well, and I think the problem for accommodations with mental illness is people are so afraid yeah. of saying what is obvious, what the behaviors are in the workplace. Mm-hmm. They think either they have to become a, um, a mental health expert and know the symptoms and right. the diagnosis, which, you know, if all of us in this room had depression, We'd all behave differently at work. So what the employer cares about is the behavior at work, not what your illness is or your symptoms. So we try to teach people how to have that conversation in a non-clinical, non-medical, non-invasive way. Let's talk about work. So Mm -hmm. we have the resource supporting employee success. Mm -hmm. And right now, the Institute for Work and Health here in Toronto are doing some research around how that applies. But in it, we don't ask a diagnosis. We don't ask about symptoms. We just say, here's the job expectation, which Mm -hmm. is to deal with confrontational situations. Mm -hmm. Here's the level of expectation. So the employer fills that out and how it affects the job. The employee's role is to say, here's where I think I am in being able to deal with that right now Mm -hmm. and how I think that's going to impact me. 
And then the third column on the each of these pages is here's some accommodation strategies that have worked for other people. Mm-hmm. Which one do you think would support you to be able to deal with whatever the job expectation is most successfully? Right. And so we just find solutions because mm-hmm. mental illness doesn't make you stupid. Right. If you were competent and trained to do your job, before you got sick, right. you'll, with support, 99.9% of people will be able to do it again. Right, and possibly even better to and, back to that idea right. of growth. The issue comes when you were never trained. Right. You were never supported. Or maybe even in the wrong job to begin with. Right. right. And then to say, okay, well, will this, but sometimes the process actually identifies sure. that you don't have the training, the resources, the equipment to do the job. And so that's an even easier fix. Yeah. So then what? what's your, or how do you address managing up when the employee is fine uh, and they're noticing something with their manager uh, that might be problematic? So, so we actually have a, a video that we did for working through it. And it is uh, called Help Your Supervisor Help You. And in it, I say, don't try and talk to them about your illness. Mm -hmm. Don't try to think that they're going to understand you Mm because anyone with a mental illness knows most of their family and friends don't really get it. Right. right? If you haven't had the lived experience, it's hard to know. But what you say to your supervisor is, I really want to be a good employee. But these are the things that I think I need in order to do that. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can help me with it. Mm -hmm. So just talk about what you need to do your job and say, here are the things I'm going to do to be able to support myself to maintain my energy, maintain my focus, to Mm -hmm. do good work. And if I'm not doing the work that I should Here's how I'd really like you to come and approach me mm-hmm. so that I can hear you, so that I can really react to that in a positive way. Yeah. So you can manage your manager. <laughs> now, what if, I'm just going to throw a bunch of what ifs at you now because yeah. <laughs> I think I've, I've heard a lot of them. Um, what if you notice uh, a coworker uh, who might be struggling? What should you do in that case? So that we dealt with in helping troubled coworkers. But the thing about it is – Don't be giving them a whole bunch of information. Mm. Don't be telling them that, you know, your cousin had this and that's what they did, unless they're asking. Mm. What you can do is say, hey, Marianne, this is what I've noticed. This doesn't seem to be the way you usually are. Are you okay? Mm -hmm. You know, give them an opening if they want to share. Ask them, say, you know, if you need anything, if you want to talk, I'm here And give them the advice when it's asked for because Mm. you can shut them out, shut them down. If you start to come at them as yet another person who's trying to give them advice when they're just trying to get through the day. Especially if they have a diagnosis or not of a mental illness, you get advice from a lot of people. Yes, (laughs) whether you want it or not. Whether you want it or not, exactly. And some of that advice isn't going to work for them anyways. So just because your second cousin once removed recovered from depression on this drug right. does not mean that's the, the ideal approach for them and, in fact, may make them worse. Yeah. Now, what about a, a manager or supervisor who uh, re- direct report thinks might be struggling with a mental illness? And so my first thing is understand that your boss is a human being. Right. Show some compassion because you may recognize that they're dealing with mental illness because they're really being difficult. Mm. 
But first see that they're a human being. Reach out, say, you don't seem to be yourself. Are you okay? You know, mm-hmm. is there anything that I can do to make it easier on you right now? Mm-hmm. But then if they continue to manage in a way that's harmful for you, mm-hmm. then you need to negotiate a new way of interacting. And mm-hmm. I had that situation once where somebody was just constantly threatening me berating me, putting down everything that I did. And I got to the point where I was just ready to quit. But I knew this person had a mental health problem. So I asked them, what is it you want to get out of the work that I'm doing? Mm. And they said to me, I want to be the first person to get credit for what you're doing. They said that. They said that. And I said, that's great. That's what I want too. But when you're threatening me, I imagine you're trying to motivate me to get Mm. me to focus. And they said yes. And I said, it's not working. It actually paralyzes me and I'm not doing my best work. I agree that if my program fails, I'll fall on my sword. I will quit. Mm. You won't have to fire me. Mm. But if you agree to that, then you got to let me make the decisions, make the mistakes, Stop threatening. Know that you're safe. Mm. You'll be fine. Mm. No matter what happens with this program, it's not going to reflect badly on you. Mm-hmm. And they left me alone. Wow. Now, they didn't leave everybody else alone. No, and sure. They because ended not ev- getting fired. Well, but, but not everybody else would have that kind of emotional awareness, that kind of ability to have that conversation. Or, right? or courage, because courage. I knew that yeah. I could quit. Right. And that's what gave me the courage to do it. But you're right. It is emotional um, awareness because I understood what they were dealing with and that it really wasn't about me. Yeah. So on the on the quitting front, then, how do you know when it's time to quit? Right. (laughs) My personal um, is if I have a bad attitude. Right. Then it's time for me to move on or move on to something else, because I don't want that toxicity to permeate my personal life. Right. So for me, it's as simple as that. Yeah. For other people, they have what I call the golden handcuffs. Mm. They don't think they can get another job. They can't get enough money. They feel tied to it. But I've watched so many people with that attitude then get so unwell mm. that either they do get fired because their performance slips or they end up off on disability, right. which you know, some people go, oh, yeah, now they're off on leave. It's not fun. Yeah. It really isn't. So to think that that's the end goal isn't positive. So I think we owe it to ourselves to not stay in a really toxic job. Mm. With full understanding, we need to make a living. But just there was somebody who said once, if you're in a job that you hate, then master it. Mm. Be so good at it that you know you're too good to be there. And what that does to your psyche is it allows you to seek other jobs with confidence Mm. rather than just hating your job and that being your reputation, that being the way you work. Mm -hmm. It's hard to have confidence in yourself going anywhere else. Yeah. And that's such a key factor, I think, having that confidence in in whatever it is that you're doing, whether you're a janitor (laughs) at a a school and confidently part of that team or, or doing something else. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I want to thank you for coming in and having it with me. Um, Is there anything else that you think that people should know? They're going to want to know the third psychosocial factor. We didn't even get to that, did we? So let's do that. So let's do that. They'll be going, wait a minute. Um, And it's psychological protection. It's knowing that your organization has your back 
and will not put you in harm's way. Mm -hmm. And uh, that goes all the way from the Department of National Defense, where, of course, you're in harm's way or across the wire, Mm -hmm. but they're doing everything that they can to protect you psychologically as well as physically. Yeah. Yeah, and and just feeling like somebody has your back uh, on its own can help you to feel safer. Great. That's great. Well, thank you again for having this conversation with me, Marianne. Uh, I'm looking forward to the feedback from this, and and hopefully we don't see droves and droves of people suddenly quitting their jobs. (laughs) (laughs) But if that's what's right for them, then maybe that's what they need to do. So, uh, But thank you uh, for having this conversation, and uh, all the best to you and your work. Great. Thanks. Um, Mark, can I just add that WorkplaceStrategiesForMentalHealth.com is where all those free resources are? WorkplaceStrategiesForMentalHealth.com. You mentioned Mindful Manager. Uh, so that's as, mindfulemployer.ca. As well. Mindfulemployer.ca. Uh, the National Standard for Psych Health and Safety is through the Mental Health Commission of Canada and uh, CSA, I believe. Yeah. Uh, so people can look up more on that. And uh, look up Marianne Baton and all the wonderful videos that you've been doing for, for your entire career. It seems like it's it's been uh, helpful for me, and I'm sure that it'll be helpful for listeners as well. Well, and keep doing what you're doing, Mark. You inspire me on a regular basis. Thank you, Mary. Okay, that's it. That's my conversation with Marianne Bainton. Mary Ann is the program director for the Great West Life Center for Mental Health in the Workplace. Go check out their website as well. There's so many resources on there that you can use either as an employee or as an employer, a manager, supervisor, person who might be struggling, ally, however you identify uh, your interest in workplace mental health. Chances are there's a great resource on the Great West Life Center for Mental Health in the Workplace website. I'd like to thank Mary Ann, certainly, for coming on the show. She's so much fun to talk to and she has such a depth of knowledge. Uh, Make sure you go and find her on on social media as well and read up more on what she does. I'd like to thank our production team here at Entertainment One for making this possible every single Monday. Kimberly and Adrian and Dave, our editor who brings it all together. Thank you all so much for getting my voice. I, I said this last week too, getting my voice into people's ears and I like that because it sounds creepy. I want to ask you to head over to Apple Podcasts, which is where we're available there and everywhere else but head over to apple podcast and subscribe scroll down to the bottom leave us a star rating uh leave us some comments on there that stuff really does make a big difference and i'm so grateful that the show has such a good star rating as it is it seems like people the ones who are listening are really listening hard uh, and they're really enjoying the conversations too as, as much as i am so head on over there and do those things for me you can follow us you can follow me if you want to learn more about the show or more about what i do in the mental health space i'm everywhere twitter and facebook most but I'm also on LinkedIn, YouTube, Tumblr, Reddit, probably. I don't know. I'm everywhere else. Go find me. I'm not hard to find. At Mark Hennick on most of those platforms. That's at M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K. Follow me. Leave some comments. Let me know what you thought of all the shows. I think that's it for this week. Uh, tune back in next Monday. We've got another good guest for you. I, I enjoy them all. I'm Mark Hennick, and this has been So-Called Normal. Normal.